Soon may the IT team come to discontinue the Tezo Sun. One day when the CRP's done, we'll take our leave and go. Hello, welcome back. I'm joined by Dr. Morgan Evans, who is an ID consultant in Edinburgh, which is very close to the Nadosh Royal. How are you? How are you doing, Dr. Evans? Oh, well, thank you. You can call me Morgan. <laughs> Morgan. I have known you for a long time now, Callum. <laughs> um, what, how are you finding the conference? It's been inspirational, slightly overwhelming, and beautiful weather and a beautiful city. Very nice. Beautiful miso cookies. Um, yeah, well, you seemed very sad this morning without the miso cookie yeah. that you so yeah. desire. So we I've need our fuel one. to learn. I think uh, that's an yeah. important thing, sort of uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You could like, bring some into work. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if I get the Molditoff to analyse the constituent parts, I'm not really sure what's in it. Oh, okay. Is that a new application, Christmas BMJ article? Yeah, I don't think you should tell your lab colleagues what you're doing with that. <laughs> I need to buy my own one. I've got my one in my, in my attic. I've got the 3D printer, and I'm going to get a, oh, yeah? a Molditoff at home. Okay. Uh, that would be amazing. Uh, what were some like highlights okay. of the of the, po- uh, the not the podcast of the uh, conference for you? Uh, so highlights were um, as a stewardship geek. Um, I enjoyed going to a stewardship um, post-presentation and I think we kind of saw some really good examples of where interventions were successful and as less successful than one would hope. So an educational intervention had some impact in terms of reducing uh, general practitioners' prescriptions of fluoroquinolones for urinary tract infections. I think that was in Switzerland in uh, geriatric uh, homes. Um, but as we always talk about education being one of the uh, less effective interventions and how uh, the, the subsequent presentation was of um, suppression of results in pseudomonas infection based on UCAST change in their intermediate susceptibility for piptaz and keftazidine and by reporting susceptibility to meropenem uh, the clinicians were choosing meropenem more frequently than they had previously before UCAST uh, susceptibility patterns and descriptions changed. Oh so because it says susceptible increased dose or I people are like oh that means that tazosin must be worse yeah so I'll use meropenem because yes. that's susceptible. So um, oh, that's they were really just reporting I um, and the the clinicians would have to know what that meant. So again, the education part of uh, a change in practice and the implications of that not always being clear. So by suppressing the meropenem result when they had other alternatives where they could just use high dosing, they were able to show uh, um, before UCAS change, UCAS change in their reporting system and then post-suppression of meropenem using electronic prescribing data, which is obviously my other interest and they were able to show uh, a great improvement in um, uh, reduction in carbapenem use by going back to using the agents to which I was an appropriate use of piptazokeftazidine and so it just made me think about how electronic prescribing can not only help understanding practice but also thinking about because those doses of those antibiotics need to be sufficiently dosed for it to be active how you could then ensure through a stewardship intervention that when those drugs are prescribed, can you go and look and is this for directed therapy to an isolated pseudomonas and are they on the right dose for that patient group? So improving patient outcome through the use of prescribing data in a real-time intervention 
as well as that ability to look at behaviour retrospectively. That's that's really interesting. It's making me think, reflect on how we how we write reports, which is like, here's an organism name that you may or may not have heard of. Here's a series of letters, S, I, or R. People don't know what that means. And whether whether actually we need to get to a stage where we just say the report is we have grown organism, you know, text-based. We've grown this organism and a suggested treatment would be Piptoracil and Tazobactam, 4.5 grams every six hourly IV. And, and that's it, just reported like that yeah. rather than Piptaz I. And I think it comes back to what we've talked about previously in terms of how interpretation of a test is something that we all do quite um, different investigative specialties do in a different way so radiology just don't show you the scan results they will give you an interpretation of that with some information which you can go back and discuss and you sometimes find a slightly different interpretation either with the same radiologist or with a different radiologist and the same with microbiological investigations the interpretation is something that we used to do quite um, black and white, I, S, R, but actually how much can we, how much more of a recommendation of a treatment can we give? It's so hard, colonization versus uh, actual infection, sample type, overwhelming numbers of sample types, meaning interpretation could be impossible for swabs, urines, but actually um, are there certain sample types that would benefit and we see that a little bit with some of the comments that are added yeah, on our yeah. but do people read the comments and the comments is at the bottom or it's hidden in a little box and whether you, yeah maybe that's an interesting analogy of radiology reporting and you know you don't get the scan enough to although there was actually a Dr. Galkenflecken video about this recently where he was talking about like let's look at the scan like we really look at the scan before we look at the report and then if the computer takes so long to load the scan, they just say, just read the report, <laughs> which I thought was very, very apt yeah. for, for my experience. But maybe instead of saying, like, here's the antibiogram that you interpret, it, it, for, the first thing that comes up is, here's our interpretation, here's a comment, like almost like a ref lab report. Like the ref lab reports do that really nicely. Right. They explain the result and then they give you the detail. And I don't think we can really hide the detail away because although a lot of clinicians maybe aren't comfortable interpreting them, there might be some people like, like yourself who... Who are, and so we kind of need to give everyone the full detail, not hide it, but maybe... Oh, no, I, I like hiding. So, oh, okay. But there's good evidence to show, especially in the okay. tract infection, that suppression of suspectability improves prescribing practice. So you're more likely to uh, get people prescribing what you think is the first-line antibiotics, whether it be trim, nitrofurantone, phosphomycin, by suppressing the cephalaxins, the fluoroquinolones, mm. and these other things. And I think we've got that problem to yeah, a degree. And not doing alphabetical order. Ah, oh, alphabetical, the thing that makes me cry every time, because no one can read past cephalaxin. But, um, so yeah, so there's those kind of aspects of interpretation of investigations and the way we report. And I think that links to not only what the lab pushes out, but actually how they interdigitates with other parts of the infection team, the stewardship team, the stewardship pharmacist for getting dosing right. Um, when you're getting repeated isolates, how you get a clinical bedside review to understand what was being missed sometimes with what you're getting from a very junior doctor phoning into the laboratory. And there's a mismatch sometimes between the information being offered and the reality sometimes. So I think... Uh, that was really interesting, two nice presentations, one showing impact, but not as much impact potentially as mm. uh, an intervention, which is a much harder intervention. Um, 
And then the other bit from the conference was really around implementation of guidelines. So, yeah, you know, I, that I love my really apps and things, and I, I like trying to think, how does an F2 at 3 o'clock in the morning know what to do? And how do you make sure that you don't give um, information which requires too much interpretation at the point of use? So dosing ranges, duration ranges, my most hated thing. We all know doctors will just use the longest duration most often. So that implementation session was interesting, talking a bit about strength of evidence um, and how sometimes we have strong recommendations based on very low evidence base. And that very low evidence, the definition, can sometimes mean the observed outcome may be the very opposite of actually what is the true outcome and actually that intervention may be harmful so sometimes there's the dogma of um, our uh, specialist opinion based on our experience is not actually the real truth of that intervention so we see that a lot though we? we all know that the recommended uh, what we what experts opinion is based on is often very poor evidence and actually as time goes on an evidence base accumulates which actually shows what we thought was expert opinion and correct was never correct and that That's actually could have been helpful. I guess it's okay to base things on expert opinion when there is no evidence but what I sometimes see happening is that we have an established dogma or expert opinion and then we get a trial and maybe the trial is not perfect but it's pretty good and then it doesn't fit with what we've been doing and it's quite hard for we're all kind of prone to finding evidence that supports our pre-held beliefs so then you know like well that paper doesn't agree what we do and so I'm going to pick holes in it and then that means it's not relevant but then when you look at like what we were basing what we were doing on before there's no evidence to back that absolutely and I think that came out in the uh, brain abscess um, the ECMID um, consensus guidelines where there were quite strong recommendations for some interventions but based on very uh, evidence with significant risk of um, yeah, well, very low quality evidence and I sometimes think that it's perhaps best similar to when we talk to medical students I really don't mind them saying I don't know but actually that is the correct answer just because we think it's the right thing we should probably be a little bit more open and honest about mm. the evidence is yeah the evidence is unclear know. we don't know this might be good practice i guess it's like like difference between what best practice is and what good practice is and we then have to reflect as you described on when new evidence comes out and i think uh we've heard a lot in this conference about um uh, oral is the new iv shorter uh, better and the things that i could bang on about constantly in work no i never heard you talk about them <laughs> And, but still, there, you know, there's so many studies showing um, the difference between these things are non-inferior or actually superior very often and the ecological harm to not only the individual but societal ecological harm with use of plastic and carbon footprint of IV antibiotics is so huge. Um, yet still, I think we're at quite a way away from moving in a number of conditions, things we see really commonly, to oral antibiotics, short course antibiotics. So I think uh, I may continue saying uh, shorter is better for a while and uh, <laughs> moving people onto high bioavailability appropriately dosed um, antibiotics. We heard a lot about 
correct, yeah. amoxicillin and cephalaxin dosing for okay. severe infections. That was interesting, trying to make sure that we are going for the higher appropriate doses to make sure we've got the yeah. time above MIC and things like that. So, so it's because, yeah, cephalaxin's got a huge dosing range that oh, you can yeah, give. Yeah, yeah. And I think we often, you know, particularly when I talk to um, general practitioners in the community, and I think there there is a, a move, you know, like whatever the guideline says, so... 500 milligrams twice daily. I think it's quite commonly prescribed dose in the UK, but you can go up to a gram every six hours. And yep. if you look at the pharmacokinetics of the time, because with it, because it's being a beta lactam antibiotic, you want it to have time over MIC. Yeah. And I was really surprised because we don't really use cephalexin for severe infections locally. And when I was reading about the pharmacokinetics of it, it was like the, the, the authors were arguing that one gram every six hours had better time over MIC than amoxicillin one gram three times a day. Yeah. I was like, oh, and actually our dogma has been cephalexin isn't suitable for bacteremia. And, and actually maybe that's because we were using too low a dose. Potentially, and I think we have seen cephalexin in, say, the NICE pyelonephritis guidelines, mm. but um, I think that has... I can't remember the dose in that instance that's recommended, but I, I su- suspect it's probably not even that one gram um, four times a day, which I think would be the dose you would use for anything more than cystitis. So if you've got, a, and again, probably this is directed therapy rather than empirical therapy, so directed therapy um, for a bug that you've isolated mm. and um, then you know that you've got sensitivities and you, can, you know what the source is and you've done source control and actually using cephalaxin may be something that we Maybe. should be doing more. And first generation cephalosporins in association with CDI are probably different to later generation cephalosporins. So Definitely. Lots to learn and think about. So much to learn. Well, that's some great take-home messages. I feel like we could talk for a whole <laughs> hour, two hours, I don't know, about antimicrobial stewardship, something that's very, very important and um, has been covered a lot of ECMIT. So um, maybe if you've got the recordings, you can pick up some of those sessions or uh, there's a lot of stuff on Twitter as well from Morgan Evans. So uh, thanks very much for joining uh, us. Uh, on Twitter, it's at AMS Lothian. So go at to that. AMS Lothian. Yeah, yeah. yeah, there we go. There's a shout out. Okay. Thanks very much. Bye. <laughs> It's Callum here. I'm joined by Dr. Olivia Hawkes, who is a clinical fellow in Edinburgh, uh, an ex-ID micro FY2, <laughs> and uh, a budding infectionologist. Uh, welcome. Hello. Hello. Um, and you're currently working in medicine of the elderly, or yes. geriatrics, as yes. it was once called. How's the conference been? Uh, it's been brilliant, actually. It's been uh, extremely varied, very overwhelming. Weird and wonderful stuff from all over the place, all different areas of infection. Um, so I've had a brilliant time. Yeah. Great, that's good. <laughs> good, so you're going to come back. Are we not Hopefully. scared of you? No, not yet. <laughs> Quite yet. <laughs> and what's been some highlights of the conference for you? Um, so I think some standout sessions for me have been ones that have introduced new concepts or new approaches to things that I deal with, I suppose, relatively frequently being a more junior member of the team and particularly at the moment I'm working in um, community medicine of the elderly which has given me a bit of a new perspective on things so I went to a session that looked at antimicrobial prescribing in end-of-life care and um, uh, a sort of overview of a very difficult topic I think and it was something I'd never really considered from an infection perspective really I think end-of-life care is is obviously a very um, important topic and something we deal with very frequently 
but I think antimicrobial prescribing is something I hadn't really thought about before. And um, uh, this was an extremely interesting session, and she talked a little bit about why, sort of goals of antimicrobial prescribing in end-of-life care, why it's such a contentious topic, and a few kind of ethical considerations as well. And I think it just really stood out for me because it was something that I'll take back to my team, and I'll be really interested to see what their attitudes, individual attitudes are to, to a very difficult topic. Um, I suppose some of the conclusions f- from it were uh, it's not going to be a one-size-fits-all you know, thing, really. She spoke a lot about goals of treatment, as I said. So is, are you actually thinking about symptom control, in which case antibiotics are generally, uh, the evidence suggests, not going to provide much difference. She spoke a little bit about UTIs is probably one of the examples where perhaps that can provide some symptomatic benefit. But mm-hmm. again, the um, evidence is limited. It's obviously a very difficult um, topic to... Uh, investigate. Yeah, yeah you're not going to randomise control trial. No, exactly. Trial you or, can't or, really do well, that. Well, maybe you should. I don't know. Well, that's a, that's a different question. Yeah, and uh, she spoke about. So, I guess some of the ethical considerations in terms of considering prescribing antibiotics for the patient you've got in front of you versus conserving antibiotics, I suppose, for future patients. But mainly, she spoke about um, how to incorporate or considering incorporating these kinds of discussions in um, ACP planning and ACP discussions. Was it ACP and anticipatory care yeah, planning? Yes, yeah, sorry, yeah. and how to do that. And I think that's going to be something that's it's extremely individual because it, it's very different scenarios. And uh, antibiotic prescribing between patients would be very different. You know, if you've got a patient who's got a progressive or I suppose uh, yeah, long-standing chronic condition that might predispose them to infections, then that's going to be a very difficult, different ACP discussion from someone who, um, you know develops you know if you've got someone with a catheter or I think she had an example of someone with swallow compromise and sort of recurrent aspirations yeah. that's a very different kind of discussion from some you know hypothetically predicting what sorts of infections someone might get further as their condition regresses so I think it's a very interesting field and did she one of the things that I struggle with quite a lot when when we get these these you know consult queries about mm. patients who are approaching the end of life or mm-hmm. and maybe it's not been quite decided or it has been decided and yeah. the, and the treating team want to give antibiotics mm-hmm. and maybe they've you know not improved you know they've had some you know of our first line antibiotics mm-hmm. and the team are phoning to say like we want to try everything you mm-hmm. know we want to give them broader spectrum we want to give mm-hmm. them meropenem we want to give them clavapenem yeah. it's a, it's a yeah. typical question yeah. And that's really hard when you've got a team saying, we want to try meropenem, and I'm yeah. on the other end of the phone, I'm like, well, from my perspective, it sounds like this patient is dying. I've yeah. not met them. I'm not really involved. Yeah. And I want to say no, or, or at least guide and advise that I yeah. don't think is a, is a reasonable thing. And often, you know, sometimes that conversation can yeah. go well if it's a consultant that's phoning, but it might yeah. be the most junior member of the yeah. team that's phoning for that advice. Yeah. And that's quite a hard thing for them to go back and say, Oh, microbiology said no yeah. to antibiotics. You know, that's not the discussion you want to be having. Yeah. I almost want to go and speak to the patient. So, did, did, so I guess my question is, that was a bit of a ramble, was um, did, did the speaker offer any suggestions about how we can navigate that difficult mm. conversation space or any sort of data that we can that we can give to people to say like this isn't in the patient's best interest yeah i think there's two things i've picked up from that i think in terms of data why she definitely did speak about a few trials and i'd have to go back to the session to actually yeah. get the details of them um i think one thing that came out of it was clarifying the goals of treatment in each case like if you've got someone more junior or you've got a, a complex infection um, and the team are pushing for more and more antibiotics what what are they actually aiming for is it quality prolonged quality of life in which case that's a bit of a different situation from if is this actually going to improve the patient's quality of life at all um and i think i suppose that's an individual you know um uh, 
a case by case basis is this actually that what is the goal of treatment um, for that patient and I suppose also the other thing that came out of it for me is that I think as a more junior member of staff it, it, you can sometimes see antibiotics that you as you know you're, you feel you're doing something yes, and you see yes, it as something that's actually not going to cause the patient much harm you might as well try and I think that's quite a difficult frame of mind to uh, you know to I think it's very understandable that you would approach it like that and actually coming to a, a, a conference like this you see you view antibiotics and you view infection management differently I think when you're thinking about actually um, antibiotics can do a lot of harm and I think if you've got an inpatient who's getting you know increasingly strong and um, uh, or particularly if you've got antibiotics that need therapeutic monitoring and stuff like that actually the risks of harm and, and discomfort to the patient are actually quite high really yeah. and and quite clear so um, yeah yeah and I guess maybe maybe you don't help ourselves in that we talk about the the hidden harms of antibiotics on and microbiome yeah. in terms of survival you know gut health complications multi-drug resistance and I think sometimes I've encountered when the person's at the end of life that the argument is like, well, that doesn't matter because they're, they're, they're yeah. close to dying anyway, so we may as well try. And, and, and then it becomes a bit of a more discussion about like, well, one, there is some impact on that person, so there are symptoms, so it might mm. be like, a, you know, some uh, issues with... With nausea or some other yeah, complications. Yeah, exactly. And I think if you're, um, you know, as you often are in, a, in an end-of-life situation, focusing on symptom control and symptom management, then I think you should incorporate antibiotics into your assessment of that. And as particularly antibiotics aren't free of side effects, and certainly yes. you'd want to consider um, your prescribing and um, the effects of the, of the drugs that you're giving, of which I think antibiotics shouldn't be seen as a harmless and... Um, exactly. Um, you know, default. Like therapy. aspiration is a really common thing that yeah. happens at the end of life. Yeah, exactly. People get aspiration pneumonitis, may or may not have infection. We often give them anaerobic cover. There's increasing evidence that's not necessary. And metronidal is a really horrible, horrible antibiotic. Yeah. It makes people really yeah. sick. And then you're left yeah. thinking like, is this making the person feel better or are we yeah. just treating the clinician yeah. and making ourselves exactly. feel better? Because as you said, yeah. you're doing something. And then it becomes a whole population health, yeah. you know, level discussion about the, the, the environmental impact of that, that antibiotic. Yeah. And I think she she used a very um, she used aspiration as one of her examples, and then you know thinking about other symptom control measures. If you have you know established with the patient that actually um, you know recurrent antibiotic therapy isn't going to change um, the you know overall outcome, and actually we should focus on symptom control, then think about other things. Think about oral, think about other um, therapies that might um, improve symptom management. Antibiotics probably aren't necessarily going to do that, and may make you feel worse at the end of life really um, powerful yes. session so very very interesting yeah she finished with a few kind of just general points really incorporating antibiotic discussions into your anticipatory care um, and that not being you know a single discussion it's going to be recurrent discussions over a period of time as the situation changes as we all know um, and then shifting the focus from curing an infection to providing um, excellent end-of-life care so just shifting the focus a bit um which i think is difficult to do obviously as clinicians um and there's obviously quite a a lack of guidance in frail elderly patients um that's specific to those populations yeah i Um, think there's some there's a guidance document that the scottish antimicrobial prescribing mm. group have released about (laughs) antibiotics of of end-of-life care which Mm. is which is quite useful it's quite it's quite brief but it's a little bit of information yeah and then she 
left with a, um, incorporating quality of life and risk of resistance into your ethical models, which you had sort of at the end. And I was thinking that's a really oh. kind of big topic yeah. that I think... Just drop, drop that bomb yeah, drop at the that end. that one yeah. at the end. But yeah. Um, yeah, thinking about actually your goals, goals of treatment, as I said, and then um, also ethical considerations in, in um, preserving antibiotic therapy. Yeah, Great. Risk of resistance, but yeah. Thanks, Thanks very much for, for joining me, Olivia. <laughs> no and uh, really interesting to hear about that. Cool. Sad to have missed that session. Thank you. Thanks. Hello, we're back. I'm joined again by Katie Hill, who's joining us from, uh, well, has joined us from Edinburgh. She's now in Copenhagen, which makes sense. Stop talking, Calm. Uh, hi, Katie. Hello. How <laughs> are you enjoying the conference? Yeah, it's been really great. It's uh, yeah, I've really enjoyed just kind of dipping in and out of different talks. It's probably the best way to describe it. Dipping in and out. Um, okay. Yeah, I feel like I'm coming away with lots to think about and read up on. So yeah, it's been very stimulating. It's almost there's almost you've learned so much. It's hard to like if someone said to me what have you learned I think I'd struggle to come up with it but then when you have conversations with people about sessions you're like oh actually I did, I did take away quite a lot exactly I think it's hard to put together everything you've learned from the whole conference but if you think about a couple of the talks you can say a couple of like little summary statements about yeah. those so what, were you, what are some uh, highlight statements uh, that you might come up with yeah so I think I was going to talk about I went to an antimicrobial stewardship talk and the the final talk of it was about people's behaviours and how they um, incorporate new evidence, new tests, etc. into their clinical practice. And I guess it yeah, made me reflect on my own practice in terms of how quickly do I adopt evidence into my antibiotic decisions and then also what can I do to encourage sort of evidence-based behaviour um, in our sort of microbiology rounds and things. Mm-hmm. And they use this phrase in that called technology plus which is not just creating the technology for better tests or better sort of antibiotic plans, but engaging in sort of behavioural behavioral interventions as well, so that that then translates into clinical decisions. And they, they looked at um, a new sort of rapid, <clears throat> I think it was antimicrobial sensitivity testing in, in septic patients, and found that although the test said that it was sensitive to an antibiotic, the clinicians didn't necessarily believe the test yet because they didn't know to trust it um, or there was a sort of attitude of erring on the side of caution in inverted brackets um, and that would usually mean staying broad rather than going narrower which I, I know in my own practice that I have that hesitancy but actually it's it's not a cautious step because you're yeah every decision has negative impacts I guess. I, I think Katie's heard me talk about this before because it's one of my favourite topics at the moment, talking about like when we say that people are risk adverse. Like yeah. I, don't, I really don't like that term. It's like, well, I'm risk adverse, so I'm going to give them the bank and marrow or broad spectrum activity agents. And I think we're really, and that's what some of the takeaway from the ECMID conference is that like the, those hidden harms of antibiotics, you're not risk adverse, you're just changing the risks. So yeah. if you give them broad spectrum antimicrobials, you are avoiding the risk of someone having a resistant organism you're not treating, but you are increasing the risk of harm from antibiotics effects in that microbiota. So, yeah. But, I, I, but yeah, it's really interesting to hear that, you know, these stewardship interventions of data, and even though we know <laughs> the data is reliable, uh, we, we will still ignore that, and that, that yeah. human behaviour and the sort of sociology approach is really important, behaviour science. Yeah, I think it, it kind of highlighted to me that, that we do really need to engage with, like 
people are, are experts in behavioural science. It's not just about developing the, the science side of our antibiotic decisions, but engaging with other disciplines to, to affect change. Yeah. So I really enjoyed that talk, and I also enjoyed the tick-borne infections talk. And my main takeaway from that is that um, Lyme disease, it often takes the ticks hours and hours to transmit that. Okay. So they say, I think the medium was like 16 hours or something. Really? Yeah. Wow. I don't know. I might be misquoting that. But um, but there is a, a benefit. <laughs> There's a benefit to taking the tick off quickly, and you might you reduce the transmission of Lyme. But for tick-borne encephalitis, it's transmitted within minutes. So even if you minutes. Remove, even if you remove the tick immediately, it's probably too late. Um, so I thought that was quite interesting. That's, that's terrifying. <laughs> I know, yeah. Yeah, because I had plenty of tick, bite, uh, tick bites before. And um, yeah, as you say, you know, you get to the end of the hike and you just take the tick off. And I don't really worry about it too much. But that, that changes yeah. things, particularly as the, the, the evidence that's building that the range of tick-borne encephalitis is, is spreading and is wider. Yeah. Maybe it needs to be coming part of routine vaccination programmes. Yeah. Yeah, but I guess that's the flip side. At least there is a vaccine Well, for yeah, it. that's true. There, yeah. is, there is another sort of preventative thing that we can do other than removing the ticks. Yeah, what yeah. was it? Yeah, the Sporotrix Brasiliensis talk that we were talking to Mariana about earlier on and there was no... There was no preventative treatment um, and no vaccine, so mm. it's good when we've got when we've got these things available. Yeah, we've got options. Yeah. Well, well also in the tick-borne, tick-bite-borne session, that was that was the main highlight. Um, yeah, I think they so they were all quite sort of short talks. I guess the other thing that I took away from that was I guess in our UK guidance, the nice guidance for neuroborreliosis, we give keftraxone for I think mm. 28 days. And I hadn't realised, but the European guideline is, I think, doxycycline for 14 days. It's very different. And again, yes. coming back to sort of antimicrobial stewardship and best use of resources. Um, yeah, it, it was just interesting to hear that there are alternatives than sort of daily broad-spectrum IV antibiotics. Yeah, I hadn't gone to that session, but I'd heard someone saying that it was based off some Slovenian data. Um, Showing that that was Nord Inferior, yeah, I'm sure he he remembered that. Um, And it it is interesting, and I guess it comes back to what you just said about behavioural science, because we can we can look at that from the clinician point of view, but also in the patient. You know, I think you know, although we're starting to, as infection specialists, acknowledge and and get the evidence to say that the oral is as good as IV. Mm. I think if you asked any member of the general public, that is that's (laughs) so far removed from their understanding. Um, that that's going to be a really hard message to sell is that like no oral antibiotics are as good not, oh no but yeah. I need a drip I need an IV yeah and there's probably a bit of placebo effect in that isn't there in the process of coming to a healthcare centre and getting a drip and a, yeah. an antibiotic oh yeah we know so, that definitely yeah. is a big effect but yeah now, and not even just the the patient and not just the clinician but all those other people who work in healthcare centres so you know the people that have the most interaction with your patient might be like the healthcare support worker or the you know the nursing nursing yeah. students or the cleaner and coming into the room and they're still a professional working in the healthcare setting and they they might say stuff like oh you better get some strong antibiotics better get those IVs so how do we how do we spread that message um, yeah well thanks very much for sharing some, some highlights from those You're sessions welcome. thanks And with that, the ECMID 2023 mini-series comes to an end. I hope you have found that helpful, either if you were there 
or at home. A huge thanks to all our guests and hopefully see you there next year in Barcelona. Thanks.